Down south, they say it's the economy, stupid. Up here, we say it's the economy, eh? And this is Political A Economy Radio, a progressive take on economic issues in Canada and beyond. My name is Michał Rozwodski, and welcome to the show. The resource bus is already a few years old, but it's still hitting parts of Canada hard. I have two guests this week to talk about the impact of the downturn on fiscal policy in the Canadian prairies, and what this augurs for the bigger question of a transformation of the economy away from fossil fuels. First, I speak with Charles Smith, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Saskatchewan. He is the co-author with Andrew Stevens of a great analysis of the Saskatchewan budget titled Building the Saskatchewan Advantage, Saskatchewan's 2017 Austerity Budget, over at the Socialist Project Bullet. Next, I speak with Ian Hussey, Research Manager at the Parkland Institute, a social democratic think tank in Alberta. He contrasts the Alberta NDP's more stimulative approach to public finance with that of Saskatchewan. However, there remain many questions about the scale of the shift and the need for real climate action. First up, conversation with Charles Smith. First of all, I, uh, the commodity boom ended a few years ago, but it seems it's only this year that the Saskatchewan government has presented a really radical response to this fact. Um, why is this year's provincial budget so uh, vicious, for lack of a better word, and what are some of its uh, biggest measures? Right. So I, to understand that question, you have to understand sort of the electoral cycle in Saskatchewan. So the the elect, the, the uh, commodity boom ends in 2014, 2015, roughly. It had been coming down a little bit for a few years, but it kind of hits you know, sort of the underneath that $50 barrel mark for fairly consistently, uh, you know, around 2014, 2015. Uh, you know, the the, the government runs what it calls a balanced budget, but really had borrowed significantly to fund its infrastructure projects. And, uh, you know, with some kind of a trick accounting, it had it had claimed a, a balanced budget, but really was about $700 million in, in deficit. And then, you know, moved, they moved immediately into electoral mode and refused to introduce a budget during the last fiscal year until after the election. Now, most people knew that the boom was over, that the government was going to be dealing with some significant shortfalls because the overwhelming majority of its income comes from natural resource, non-renewable commodities. It, after the election, it punted the budget for another year and then started hinting almost immediately in this really bizarre form of governance that, you know, Mikhail, that I've never really seen before, where they, you know, they floated policy after policy after policy, quite reactionary stuff, for almost a year. And I think we're trying to soften the blow and then came out with this pretty devastating budget, uh, you know, just last you know, last week or a week and a half ago. So so what stuck around? What are some of the biggest sort of highest impact, say, measures that um, that were announced in this budget? Well, I think the deficit and the, the deficit got a lot of press, but underlying the deficit were the political choices they made to address it. Uh, I think people were prepared to accept some form of deficit financing, which they ended up doing, of course. Uh, but what they've done is they've restructured the state, and they've been doing this for quite a while, but they've really developed this full frontal attack on you know, public services outside of health. And I think that's important to emphasize. This, this government has been very strategic in keeping health running at a very consistent sort of above inflation uh, set of funding. And I think they've developed a category, like a electoral strategy that, you know, they can't touch health. Outside of that, however, and even I can get back to that in a little bit, but outside of that, they've they've sold off or at least eliminated a major crown corporation, uh, sort of almost, you know, public transportation for rural Saskatchewan. 
in the STC, the Saskatchewan Transportation Company that had been around for uh, since the 1940s. The, the, the Douglas government, the CCF government, going back to the 1940s, introduced this, which essentially is a public transit system for people from rural Saskatchewan to get into the cities. It had been operating a loss for the last 40 years, uh, but, you know, a lot of public services operate at losses, give or take, given, you know, but the, but the need is there. Mm-hmm. That was a big one. Uh, you know, and I, you know, and the, the restructuring of the public service, which had been going on for quite some time, kind of hit full circle. Um, not, you know, wage decreases, layoffs in sort of on the fringes, you know, janitors were laid off. Um, you know, some of the crowns were, you know, workers in the crowns were laid off. Um, so lots of, of layoffs, lots of wage rollbacks, or at least they're, they're pushing for wage rollbacks, which, you know, I would argue they're going to have some trouble with because they have to go through the process of bargaining and how do you bargain uh, fairly if you've already set the terms of, of a, a salary. Yeah. Um, so there's been a lot of that. There's been musings about selling off chunks of some of the big crowns. And, you know, for, the, for your listeners who may not know, the Crown Corporation in Saskatchewan is really the third rail of electoral politics. You can't really touch these big crowns. You have to do so very carefully because they're the second largest in the public service in Saskatchewan is the second largest contributor to GDP. And it, it adds, uh, it adds a level of stability. And, you know, the SAS party has been very careful about this because they've lost elections in the past when they promised to sell the crowns. Um, so, but they're ticking, they're, they're sort of chip, chipping away at it on the edges. And I, this, this budget has really been an opportunity for them to do that. And then the other big loss was in education. The universities took a big hit, and the public school system took a big hit. Uh, and the fallout from that is still to come because on top of the wage decreases, didn't, there's been a decrease in funding. And in the cities, there's been a massive increase in population. So you're seeing it's not just a straight cut. The expenses for the boards are going up while they're, while they're cutting uh, money transfers to the board. So it's going to be a real difficult time in the public school system. And the flip side of that, sort of what's been happening to revenues to lead up to this point like you said you know there's deficit financing people are kind of prepared for it but what have been you know this uh the so-called saskatchewan advantage right that the saskatchewan parts has pushed what's what is it who benefits from it and what what sort of happened to government revenues to set up this um you know post-boom yeah uh, situation yeah, yeah. So in, in the piece that Andrew and I wrote, we talked about this and we argued that, you know, there's two things going on here. One is that the government uh, is obviously in crisis. They're, you know, they, they, they are short of, of money. They, they've, they've spent, I think, unwisely and on pet projects like big infrastructure projects, which, by the way, most have been financed through P3s. Uh, but at the same time, I think they're also seeing an advantage here, something they can do that they otherwise couldn't do. So we could talk about the crowns, but one of the big ones is they shifted uh, tax revenue to uh, more of a consumption tax. They raised the, the provincial sales tax, which in and of itself, you know, we could debate whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. You know, how sales taxes do, you know, I think disproportionately hurt hurt the poor, or the working working people and the poor. But at the same time, if it's used in a progressive way, it can be offset. But at the same time, they've cut business taxes and personal income taxes. Right. So they're shifting the entire tax system more so to to workers and the poor to finance uh, this sort of post-boom. And I think that's why we're seeing polls just come out today where a lot of people are really upset because the PST raise hurts workers and the poor. It also hurts small business, so they push back against it. Uh, and then they cut personal taxes for companies who, you know, the big ones certainly do better. Uh, and they cut personal income taxes, so wealthy people pay disproportionately less than working people. So you see this real shift in in government revenue and, and government ideology and it pushes more and more workers towards the market to, to, 
have to finance their own basic services. And then on top of that, there was cuts that just seemed cruel. They cut uh, public financing for hearing for, for for hearing aids, so people who can't afford to buy hearing aids who are deaf can no longer you know rely on the public service for that. They've um, they privatized partially long-term care. Um, so in you know, long-term care facilities, 50% of it not to be financed out of pocket. Uh, and, you know, so that that's, that'll hurt, you know, poor people for long-term access to long-term care. Um, you know, they, they've, they've got rid of all kinds of tax exemptions to, uh, you know, PST exemptions for things like children's clothing. Uh, so just a lot of these things seem, you know, cruel, you know, they could, they lay up genders, right. As if genders were the reason that this government is a billion dollars in deficit. Yeah. Um, so it just, it just, it comes across as cruel. They, one of the strange things they did is they raised social, the social service budget by almost 9%, which in and of itself, you would think, wow, that's interesting, what's going on there? And then the day the budget's released, the minister's on, on television saying that they want to get people off of welfare, and this money's going to be used to get people off of welfare and back into the labor market. So it's a typical right-wing response to everyone on welfare is lazy and should be working, and you're not working, and you don't contribute to the public good. And so there's a lot of really nasty things going on underneath this budget. <laughs> yeah, that's a, yeah, the one stimulus is getting people off welfare. That's quite the, that's, you know, some some sense innovative and actually, that brings me i thought there was an interesting thing that you you and andrew wrote in your piece and you said that this was actually a kind of unoriginal unimaginable austerity budget um and, and you had a bit of sort of a bit of a discussion of austerity politi- politics in canada in the last decade or more um maybe you could expand on that a bit more and just say how this budget fits into the sort of the pattern of austerity across canada and and what makes you call it unoriginal well, I mean, you look what they've done. You know, they're, they've been talking a lot about how they want to shift dependence on government revenue from natural resource commodities to something else. And their, their, their argument is that we'll raise the PST and this will move from a consumption-based tax to, you know, the sort of ups and downs of the commodity market. Uh, well, that's hardly original. I mean, when you look at the austerity l- uh, literature uh, and sort of the right-wing economists and the right-wing push you know, to, to drive innovation, it's always about low personal and business tax regimes and higher consumption tax regimes, which of course are a form of a flat tax. I mean, this is a way to push government revenue and government dependence on revenue away from capital and onto working people and the poor, right, disproportionately. So, I mean, we go through a decade of boom, which the government, the SAS party benefits from electorally and Bradwald benefits personally with incredible popularity numbers. And that, in some ways, limited what they could do because this is a right-wing government that doesn't like the public service and does thinks the NDP, the, the, sort of, the sort of moderate social democrats, are have ruined the place with all their public spending and crown corporations. So when you look at how they're using the crisis, Andrew and I sort of looked at some of the austerity literature and said, well, geez, you know, they're doing exactly the formula that governments have done when they implement austerity. They've raised consumption taxes. They've closed. Uh, tax loopholes for um, consumers, which were, were meant to bent, offset some of the tax increases. So the children's clothing is a good example. Right. Um, you know, they they closed tax loopholes for restaurant meals. So now, you know, small restaurants, which you know, as we know, that that the economy of or the political economy of, of restaurants is is tangible at best. They come and go, you know, quite quite quickly. So that's gonna that's gonna hurt some of the small businesses that, you know, were, I think, sort of thriving in the cities, that's going to make it harder for them to survive. You know, there's been no mention of changing the minimum wage to help workers offset these tax increases. Uh, and incidentally, the, the Social Democrats haven't been talking about that either. They've been opposing this, but they haven't been talking about sort of proactive issues. So that's, a you know, we could talk about that if you'd like. But it's really, I mean, when you look at what austerity governments or, or governments who implement austerity have done, 
um, they've, they've, they've used this, this, this crisis to shift the discussion and shift government revenues away from a, pro, 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 sorry, uh, from a progressive forms of taxation to uh, regressive ones. And that really is what the austerity model is all about. And you just, you see it time after time, province, federal governments. I mean, Europe's been doing this for years. Um, it, the model is so clear. And, and that's why I would argue it's very unoriginal what they've done. Although ironically, they've been talking about how innovative this budget is. And I think the, the polls show that the public's not buying it. Yeah, that was um, in some ways heartening to see. I want to get to that and, and a couple of the other things you said, but one other aspect, um, sort of before getting to you know what what happens next and what the reaction's been. One other aspect I think that you touch on in the article that's very important um, and isn't really centered on this one budget, but is more long term, is this kind of deep restructuring of how the public sector works. Basically, how has this government pursued this project? You know, you talk about sort of the introduction of lean management. This uh, kind of management model from you know from the 80s 90s um into hospitals and schools and into the public sector what's what's been the deal with that in saskatchewan yeah so there's the the government's been talking a lot about how you know this is uh, we gotta we gotta make the public service more lean we've gotta it's you know public servants have been you know doing you know getting off you know winning these like gangbusters in terms of their wage increases but over the last 10 years that's really not been the case there's been a few examples you could point to where public service did very well and the one that they always like to talk about the government does is the nurses in 2007 2008 got one an amazing contract and there's a upwards of 20 to 30 percent wage increases over the life of the contract Uh, but that was in many ways was catch up for years of real lean years in hospitals uh, they were losing nurses to other jurisdictions in in record numbers and they, there was really a sense that we have to retain some of the talent in Saskatchewan. It's always been a problem in Saskatchewan. Workers are always leaving to greener pastures, especially in Alberta. It's been less true in, in the downturn of this time because Alberta can't absorb the, the, the surplus of workers that they once could. Mm-hmm. Um, so, But when you look across the public service outside of a few contracts like that, really they've been funding public services at you know at or above inflation. And what they've been doing... Sorry, at or below? At or, no, just at or a bit above. I mean, oh, so, you know, okay. The contracts during the boom were, you know, one or two percent. Uh, you know, in my in the in the post secondary, our contracts were fairly consistently one and a half to two percent wage increases each year, okay. which you know are, are an inflation or just a little bit above. Mm-hmm. So they were, they were definitely funding post secondary education, education, healthcare at inflation, and in some ways making up for the fact that there was record numbers of people you know accessing these services because the population was going going up like gangbusters in Saskatchewan. The population becomes a real political football. Uh, because it's been historically been such a small province that people want to sort of don't stay in, right? And they're really yeah. so the population getting over one one point one million was a big political win for the government. <clears throat> but underlying all that, there's been pretty big restructuring initiatives by this government. You know, they have been replacing retirements. They've been um, you know trying to lean out the, the greater public service. There was a massive lean initiative in the in the hospitals uh, over the last four or five years, which could never really show huge amounts of savings. Um, but this has been an ongoing theme. So the crisis in some ways was an opportunity to sort of push that even more, right? So they're not replacing uh, you know, retirees. They're amalgamating health regions and, and giving, quite frankly, quite large buyouts to existing health administration to, to make it all one. Um, you know, so we're seeing you know million-dollar wage buyouts, which I think the public is turning against. 
Um, but the public service has been you know, sort of imposed, forced, or you know, forced or imposed um, austerity for quite a long time. But now it's on, you know, it's in the public domain. People are seeing it in a way that they didn't see it before. Yeah, and and I mean, and it just kind of underscores the point that austerity isn't uh, isn't just about cuts and cutbacks, but really. Um, or at least, or like right-wing governance today isn't just about cuts or cutbacks. It's kind of, you know, straight-edge definition of austerity, but really a kind of restructuring of the state and bringing more of the private sector into the sort of functioning of the state too, right? Well, I think you saw that directly. Two things were happening, I think. You know, so when they weren't replacing retirements or public servants were leaving, the labor market could absorb it because it was going like gangbusters. But on top of that, all the big public infrastructure projects have been base, have been P3 projects. Right, so they're punting the the expenses down the road uh, for future tax, you know, for future tax revenues because the public sector is going to make off like gangbusters and building these roads and building these this infrastructure. All the schools they built and they brag about has all been built with P three money, and that's going to cost you know the taxpayers uh, quite a bit down the road. We all know that government can borrow cheaper than, than the private sector, so all the all the costs are going to be sort of punted down the road. So whatever government that is, we'll have to deal with those costs. Um, I mean, this is a government that's been running, you know, fairly austere type policy since it was elected. But, you know, it wasn't a crisis until the resource commodity boom ended and they didn't have those revenues to, to fund uh, public services at or above inflation. And that's when the, the crisis hit the wall. So maybe to, as a final question, uh, to, to sort of look ahead, one, you know, what what kind of fight back to this austerity is slowly developing or could or you could see develop in Saskatchewan and and you know what are its prospects um and yeah talk a bit about maybe um both on the electoral terrain and and outside of it especially since you mentioned the the social democrats the NDP and what what their response has been and you know to what extent it's adequate to to what's happening sure so you know organized labor has opposed this government tooth and nail since 2007 and they were really the only interest group that was doing so. And they, quite frankly, were not making a lot of inroads, um, you know, as we can tell. I mean, they've spent records amounts of money advertising each election. They've had campaigns. And quite frankly, they've been, they had not been successful. Now that the crisis has hit, you know, Labor's continuing that resistance. It's generally been driven by the top, like the, you know, the, the union leaders at the top. Um, where I think we're seeing more resonance, though, is sort of on the grassroots front, in response to this. So the labor's been pushing back and I think, you know, they had a massive demonstration before the budget, one of the biggest probably since the 1980s when the divine government who was sort of Brad Wall's predecessor on the right, who utterly bankrupted the province. Um, uh, so they, they, you know, that was the largest demonstration since that period. However, you know, it's important to remember that labor's, in, you know, very closely tied to the NDP. So their main goal, I think, is over time to get the NDP reelected. The party itself has become so dependent on the electoral path, and this is true everywhere. And the Saskatchewan Party's been been so conservative traditionally in comparison to some of the other NDP parties, like in BC and other places. And that's saying something because most of those parties have sort of yeah. very much turned to turn to the right. Um, you know, so for instance, the problems we're seeing with the Notley government, uh, you know, in terms of its dependence on pipelines and oil extraction, are the same problems we would have if the NDP. Uh, was elected in Saskatchewan in 2020. So, you know, we haven't seen anything that comes out of that party right now that would indicate that they would do things much differently. 
in terms of relying on on non-renewable resources to drive um, you know the economic health of the province and I think that's the big question the party has yet to address uh, and that's gonna be that's gonna be a, a difficult thing for it to do so it can I think it can build up the energy of the resistance I don't think it has the answers to how to get off the roller coaster of, of natural resource commodities and the revenue they take from it um, the NDP has been opposing the budget obviously there's been very little in terms of what we would do in in you know in response to this if we were in government in some ways, they don't have to do that because we're still three years out from election. They're also leaderless. They don't have a leader at the provincial level. So the fact that they're polling at 42, 43 uh, percent is actually quite good for, the, for them because while historically has been very popular and now a leaderless party is within the statistical you know, average of, of t- being tied with them. So that's good for the party in that sense. But really, the electoral model, I think, is secondary to what's happening on the ground. So you're seeing a lot of activism emerging in a way that you wouldn't have seen a few years ago. So there was a pretty devastating cut to libraries, as an example, public libraries in this budget. And, you know, people who you would not expect, sort of uh, middle class, you know, uh, not activists traditionally, have organized things like read-ins at MLA offices where they go and sit for an hour and read a book outside of MLA's office. Um, You know, and we're seeing that. We're seeing rallies against different types of cuts. So there was a rally just yesterday to save the, the, the public bus service. Um, you know, we're seeing rallies outside of different places. Some of it's organized by, by labor. Some of it's been organized independently. There's been grassroots student movements that have emerged, uh, all in response to this austerity budget, which gives it a lot of energy. And I think, you know, when young people get angry because they feel that the, 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 you know, the deficits are being passed on to them or the shortfalls are being passed on to them, as certainly this will be in the case of students, uh, I think that it gives it energy that it might not otherwise have. So you're seeing new activists emerge. Whether it can be sustained over the long term is always the question. Um, you know, I think labor will continue to push, and they have some resources at their disposal, which is, I think, good. Whether or not that can transfer back into a sort of a long-term, you know, resistance is, is another matter. Uh, there's there's a, there's history for this in Saskatchewan during the 1970s and 80s. Uh, huge grassroots movements emerged to oppose cuts uh, in the way we're seeing now. So it, it's not unheard of in Saskatchewan. And I think the crown movement to save the crowns is always very promising because, though, again, those are types of institutions and not just the left, but sort of, you know, center liberal voters will will respond to because it's so important to sustain Saskatchewan's uh, economy. Well, so we're seeing all of that happen right now. It's all in its infancy, um, but it's certainly out there. Sorry. No problem. That's a good note to end on. that was charles smith associate professor at the university of saskatchewan on saskatchewan's budget next up ian husi research manager at the parkland institute on alberta's budget and its fiscal policy i i did an interview with uh with charles smith on the saskatchewan budget which um was a response to the oil bust that you know is already a few years old um and I was wondering if you could lead us through sort of how the Alberta government has responded to the same, to the same conditions, to the same bust. Mm-hmm. So the Alberta NDP have acted as a shock absorber. They, they've now passed uh, three budgets, 2015, 16, and 17. All of them have involved pretty substantial deficits of about 3% of our GDP, um, and uh, so that's meant that they've embarked on a very ambitious um, infrastructure investment plan. 
of something like 35 billion over four years, as well as maintaining um, core public services, uh, especially healthcare and education, which they have repeatedly said uh, they will protect uh, those sectors as far as funding, uh, covering new student enrollment, as, as well as protecting frontline service jobs. Can you get into some of the more specifics of maybe the most uh, the most recent budget? Yeah, well, the 2017 budget was, um, I would say, uh, business as usual for Alberta budget. Like they they didn't make dramatic cuts. Uh, a couple ministries are going to receive trims to their budget of in the range of a 0.5 percent to a 1 percent. Um, some uh, ministries that have come under fire. Uh, recently in Alberta, such as the new Ministry of Child Services, is are, is receiving uh, a substantial bump in funding over uh, population growth plus inflation. I think this year is close to 3% uh, increase, and next year is about 4%. Um, healthcare, um, this year and last, the NDP has, has maintained um, the spending growth to more or less equal population growth plus inf- inflation. You mentioned that the government was sort of acting as a shock absorber um, to the bus. And in a recent blog post, you highlighted a report from the economics department at TD Bank, of all places, which um, admitted that the looser fiscal policy in Alberta had contributed to its quicker and better recovery from uh, from the downturn than its neighbor Saskatchewan. Uh, can you expand a bit on that and, and, and how this has worked? Yeah, I, I think um, my take on the difference between Alberta and Saskatchewan uh, in the last couple of years is uh, the NDP in Alberta has introduced what I characterize as modest uh, revenue reform, uh, and they did that almost immediately after being elected, and, and they, they've only made the changes that was in, um, in, in their election platform for 2015. And so they had a slight bump in uh, income taxes for large corporations, and a slight bump in income taxes for people uh, earning over 125000 They haven't done other things that would enable Alberta to more quickly balance its budget, which Saskatchewan has done. So Alberta remains the only province without a provincial sales tax. Uh, it's generally believed uh, by economists and policy analysts in Alberta that we should have a provincial sales tax, probably around 5%. But with Brad Wall uh, expanding and increasing the sales tax, expanding it to include such things as kids' clothes and uh, construction equipment, uh, the purchase of of construction equipment, uh, the Premier of Alberta has made it pretty clear that her government is not going to do that, number one, because it wasn't in their 2015 election platform, and and number two, um, any government in Alberta in recent history, whether it's uh, Conservative or NDP, uh, has has very explicitly stated that they will not tax such things as the purchase of construction equipment. Because in Alberta, um, construction is kind of a sacred cow because most of it relates to the oil industry. Uh, and, and that that doesn't, uh, like the current um, government investment in infrastructure uh, is being used to continue to employ people during, during the oil price downturn, uh, skilled laborers who might otherwise uh, in boom times who are working for the oil industry. And because of the oil price downturn, we've actually seen a suppression in wages uh, for skilled laborers. So at this point, it actually makes sense for the government to invest in such things as uh, building the Calgary Cancer Center 
or um, starting to build a new hospital in Edmonton that hasn't seen a hospital since the city's population was half of what it is now uh, in the late 80s. So they're making investments in infrastructure that, that need to be built or maintained uh, at a time when they can do it more cheaply because interest rates for loans are, are down and, and like I said, uh, skilled laborers' wages are, are also suppressed a bit right now. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, the oil industry. Um, I mean, this is something where definitely it seems much more like business as usual as as compared to the pre-NDP years than, say, um, fiscal policy. Um, it, it seems that the Alberta NDP and this new government is pretty wedded to the extraction um, industry for now. What's... What's the relationship there, and is there any change on the horizon? Uh, I think the relationship is strong between Premier Nodley and her, her government and, and the oil industry in Alberta, particularly uh, the five major oil producers. So 80% of Alberta oil is, is produced by five corporations, um, and four of those five have supported the NDP and their climate policy changes. Um, we've had a price on carbon for large industrial emitters for a decade now, but we didn't have a, a carbon tax, uh, it's technically a levy, but most people call it the carbon tax, uh, was introduced in, in January 2017, and that applies to home heating fuel and transportation. So that's a new measure, uh, but it was supported by um, the, the oil majors besides Imperial Oil, because, uh, first of all, it, it spreads uh, costs out to the entire economy as opposed to just targeting the oil industry to pay for uh, climate policies. And these same corporations, uh, oil corporations, have supported uh, the NDP's introduction of the 100 megaton uh, emissions cap for emissions attributable annually to the production of Alberta oil. The other thing on um, uh, royalty or, or taxes applied specifically to the oil industry that's changed in the NDP is they they did increase corporate income taxes for large corporations as they said they were going to do and that happened about two years ago but um, in early 2016 they started a royalty review and they just said you know we want to look at um, where royalty rates are at for various uh, types of oil and gas products as, as well as coal and stuff like that and, um, of course, the media and, and the right-wing rage machine kind of lost their minds over this. But what ended up happening is the NDP actually reduced some of the royalty rates, uh, particularly for, for oil sands. And so what that has meant is the reduction in royalties actually more than compensates major oil producers for the slight hike in corporate income tax. And so overall, the NDP has actually reduced... Um, the tax and royalty payments that are required of the oil industry in Alberta um, compared to what the PCs had in place before that, which most people think um, were too low. Like recent polling in Alberta um, across the Wild Rose, the Conservatives and, and the NDP says the majority of, of decided voters in those three parties think that rich people and large corporations should be paying higher taxes. So uh, people like myself are actually hoping in the 2019 election a provincial election that the NDP or some other party is, is going to run on um, you know those popular views that we should see increases to uh, corporate income taxes as, as well as income taxes for for wealthy people 
Yeah, and is there any sense um, that this government would be prepared to run more on a policy that sees, you know, the province slowly getting off of this kind of resource um, extraction treadmill and and the sort of ups and downs of the of the price roller coaster? I mean, yeah, it's quite it's quite telling um, when the big oil companies are are fans of your climate policy. Um, you know, <laughs> it might not be going quite far enough. Yeah, well, that's the interesting thing. The, the reality on the ground of, of what the policy changes the NDP has made and, and what is said of those policy changes by um, the media as well as uh, other policy commentators that, that come from a more conservative perspective, uh, those things just don't match up. And, and as far as the 2019 election, um, I expect the NDP to run on modest revenue reform. Um, I, I don't expect them to um, to do anything substantial related to the oil and gas industry beyond further incentives to to increase uh, private investment in, in the the province. Um, and it it seems like. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the NDP in 2019 are going to concentrate on other areas that are popular with Alberta voters, and, and that largely comes down to health care, uh, long-term care specifically, because we have a long-term care crisis in Alberta that's been going on for the better part of two decades that hasn't been dealt with, uh, as well as uh, education and, and other things related to making life more affordable in Alberta. You know, what are what are some of the bolder options you you talked about um, areas where you'd want to see further movement. What are some of the bolder options to really start to sort of transform the Alberta economy? I think the boldest option is um, Alberta and other oil producing jurisdictions um, should be starting to develop plans to manage the decline of fossil fuel production, specifically oil production, over the next three decades. That would align with the goals of the global uh, climate agreement that happened in Paris. Um, and thus far, um, the Canadian federal government and the Alberta uh, provincial government have acted as if um, that agreement doesn't exist and that more stringent agreements aren't going to be introduced on, on the global level in, in, in coming years. So really what the NDP has done is with the new carbon levy on home heating and, and transportation fuels, they're starting to transition Alberta to increasing um, solar and wind energy production and moving towards more of a, a Texas model where we're an overall energy producer that includes fossil fuel production as well as uh, green energy options. And so uh, this year and in the coming few years, we're expected to see massive uh, private as well as government uh, investment in um, new public transit, uh, green energy, uh, and those sorts of things, as well as continuing on with the oil industry. And the provincial government as well as the federal government are expecting the oil industry to, to grow its production substantially. Uh, not only in the coming decade, but over the course of, of the next three decades into 2050. And uh, the reality is, at, at some point in the not-too-distant future, uh, we're going to see more stringent global agreements that are really going to restrain Alberta. And so us continuing to have the oil industry be somewhere between 25 and 28% of our GDP provincially is a serious problem. 
because what's happening within the, the industry is really there's five major corporations, like I said, that produce most of the oil, and most of the smaller or, or medium-sized companies are either going bankrupt or, or they're being acquired by those, those five players. And those five players are uh, reducing their investment, they're reducing the number of uh, employees they need to produce the oil, yet they're producing more oil over time. And so what we're seeing is uh, these companies are going to privately profit and their shareholders are going to profit while uh, the people of Alberta are receiving uh, lower amounts of royalties and there's less jobs available to, to our workers. So it's a big problem. I think beyond that, um, you know, Norway, another oil producer, uh, introduced a carbon tax in 1992. They're, they introduced that tax at, at, I believe, $50 a ton, and their current tax is closer to $75 a ton. Economists who study the social cost of carbon, which means what it would actually cost society to deal with carbon pollution, such as uh, increased um, flooding or, or wildfires like we saw in Fort McMurray last year. Um, these, these costs are going to be substantial and they're going to grow over time. Um, so I actually believe our carbon tax um, should be increasing more rapidly than the federal government is currently planning on, on the federal and provincial uh, carbon taxes to be increasing over the next few years. And economists are telling us those taxes uh, or um, levies on fossil fuels uh, should be already upwards of at least $100 and moving to the $200 per, per ton range. Uh, I don't see the NDP um, being more ambitious on, on the carbon levy beyond what the federal government is, is imposing on all the provinces in the next few years, which I believe is going to $50 a ton over the next few years. Um, so that's, that's really unfortunate, I think, for the province um, because it's going to slow our transition and our ability to, to get a better mix of uh, wind and solar energy as well as uh, some oil production that, that should see a managed decline over this time. As far as other measures for royalty reform, um, it's actually popular in our border, like I said, to, to increase taxes on, on people making uh, more than $100,000 a year. Uh, and currently, our, our tax brackets for over 100,000 a year are, are well below uh, other provinces in Canada. Um, our corporate income taxes for large corporations was 15.5% under uh, Conservative Premier Ralph Klein 15 years ago, and it, he actually cut it uh, by 33%, down to 10% uh, about 15 years ago. And, and our revenue system has, has never recovered from that. That's why we're so um, committed to the the commodity price roller coaster, and why every year, if you look over time, uh, in boom years, our uh, government revenue will go up 10 or 20 percent, and in bust years, like the global financial crisis in 08-09, or in the last couple of years with uh, the oil price downturn, we see a reduction uh, in our government revenue of up to 15 percent, which is is just that's um, a huge swing. It's a huge swing. You can't plan for it. And so in the past, what we've seen is um, consecutive uh, PC governments have just not maintained our infrastructure. Like they, they wouldn't fix schools. Uh, they, they didn't fix our hospitals. And over two-thirds of our hospitals are over 30 years old. Like basically, we had 44 years of conservative premiers. And the only one that was actually a builder was Peter Lougheed, who was premier from 71 to 85. 
And so he actually built most of the hospitals that currently exist in Alberta. And so the NDP has inherited this huge mess where they have to deal with this massive infrastructure backlog, which is, is not only schools and, and hospitals, um, but it's, it's things like um, long-term care facilities, which is the big crisis in Alberta right now. Um, and, and so what we've seen over the last 20 years in, in seniors care is this real push to privatization and having private health corporations uh, making massive profits off of seniors care in Alberta while the number of public beds is, has been going down. And the NDP in the 2015 provincial election promised to build on average 500 new public long-term beds uh, a year and they haven't met that uh, commitment in 2015, 16, or 17. And I, I don't foresee them meeting it in, in the near future. I want to wrap up on a couple of things. Um, one thing you mentioned was um, was the carbon tax. I'm wondering just about the distributional consequences of it. I mean, it's been criticized. Um, I mean, it's a policy that gets criticism from, from every angle, obviously from the right, but also gets criticism um, from the left as being uh, a sort of flat consumption tax and being a real uh, sort of market solution to climate problems. How um, How is the Alberta government dealing with this currently, dealing with some distributional consequences, and how could it deal with them uh, differently too? Yeah, I would say right now, I mean, one of the big things that's happening is um, the, the carbon tax is is fairly low. I, I believe it's twenty dollars a ton, going up to thirty next year. Um, and uh, sixty percent of Alberta households are receiving rebates that cover the additional costs that they will incur over the course of the year because of the carbon tax. So uh, it's it's a you know a few cents more on on a liter of gas at the pumps, for instance, or it's a little bit more to heat your home. Um, so there is a uh, a redistribution. Of, of money there where uh, obviously the, the lowest 60% of, of households as far as income are receiving money um, and right-wing parties in the province have said they would reduce that to the lowest third and so basically those those middle-income earners, those middle-class people, if, if you know the NDP loses the 2019 election it's very likely that they will not continue to re receive rebates and, and obviously that reduces the, the wealth distribution that the, the, the carbon tax is able to achieve. And the other thing about the carbon tax is uh, it's, it's going to um, programs that are popular, um, but um, unfortunately because of the massive backlash as you identified, not only from, from the right, but from some progressive people around the carbon tax has meant that there's a lot of misinformation um, circulating in Alberta about it. And so some of the money uh, beyond rebates is, is going to pay for uh, the phase out of, of coal-fired electricity which is a popular measure uh, in every region of the province across the three major political parties, the NDP, the Wild Rose, and the, political, uh, the Progressive Conservatives. Uh, so that's a positive thing um, that the carbon tax is paying for over the next 14 years. Um, it's, it's also going towards um, increased public transit as well as um, new uh, investment in, in renewable energy. And so what we're hoping, I'm personally hoping to see is in the future, the NDP uh, continues to do those positive things, um, but uses some of the carbon levy money, um, first of all, to compensate uh, coal workers that have, have lost or are losing their jobs because of the transition away from coal-fired electricity. I think there's a just transition component 
um, that should be dealt with there. And as well, we're um, getting um, largely through the organization Iron and Earth, uh, which is made up of, of skilled uh, tradespeople uh, who have been working in the oil industry. They've been advocating uh, for money going towards um, training skilled workers in building uh, windmills or um, implementing um, um, solar uh, generation. So uh, I'd, I'd like to see that happen. It, it, it's not in the plans currently. I, I think um, the government seems to be thinking about that. Um, and but you know they're taking things slowly because anything they do is is um, viciously criticized and usually misrepresented. Um, you know, both by their political opponents as, as well as uh, the right-leaning mainstream media. So, you know, they're, they're moving slowly, but I, I think they're moving in, in the right direction. That was Ian Hussey of the Parkland Institute. That's all for this week. Talk to you again in a little while.